This episode is brought to you by Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Hosted by Katie Milkman, an award-winning behavioral scientist and author of the best-selling book, How to Change, Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind our decisions. Hear true stories from Nobel laureates, authors, athletes, and everyday people about why we do the things we do. Listen to Choiceology at schwab.com slash podcast or wherever you listen. What did they owe and when did they owe it? Or really, what did they owe and to whom did they owe it? At some point, a lawyer has to be very honest with himself or herself and ask the question, am I, by hanging on, actually accomplishing something that is productive and consistent both with the interests of the institution and with my professional responsibility, or have I become an enabler? Hi, and welcome back to Amicus. Slate's podcast about the courts, the Supreme Court, and the law. I'm Dahlia Lithwick. I cover the courts for Slate. And once upon a time, I used to sleep. But I don't anymore because we're crazy. We are in the midst of yet another Anthony Kennedy retirement saga at the Supreme Court this week. This one was triggered by Nevada Senator Dean Heller's comments obtained by Politico last week intimating that he knew that the justice was going to step down this June. Now, it is certainly, I think, safe to say that neither Senator Heller, nor you, nor I, nor maybe even Anthony Kennedy knows whether he plans to step down this summer, but also probably safe to say that a whole lot of people will do a whole lot of fundraising in the coming weeks off this rumor regardless. This week, we thought we would turn to something we don't always pay enough attention to on this podcast, and that's in some small part because there are other podcasts where other people pay attention to it all the time, and that is the Mueller probe. And specifically, we want to ask what the ever-loving what is important anymore and what is ancillary and what is wheat and what is chaff and what it all means to you. Now, later in the show, we're going to talk to Bob Bauer. He served as White House counsel under President Obama, and he writes indispensably for just security and lawfare. But first, we wanted to try to get our heads straight on some news you can use, what matters and what doesn't, particularly in this weird financial crimes white collar portion of the Mueller probe. So the truth is, I'm confused. I totally understood the collusion and obstruction parts. I think understood the hacking portion of the Mueller investigation. But I have run out of brain cells and flashcards now to follow the money parts. So there are sprawling news stories in the last couple of weeks. There are meetings in the Seychelles and there's Jared Kushner and there's back channels and there are dead Russians popping up. And I feel often that I've just lost the thread. And one of the joys of my getting to do this show is that I can be dumb so you, the listener, don't have to be. Joining us this week to handle the financial and the money and the completely bizarre Seychelles part of the special counsel investigation is Professor Jennifer Taub. She teaches law at Vermont Law School and researches and writes in the areas of corporate governance, financial market reform, securities regulation, white collar crime. Her book, Other People's Houses, How Decades of Bailouts, Captive Regulators and Toxic Bankers Made Home Mortgages a Thrilling Business, was published in May 2014 by Yale University Press. And I think she also helped invent the tax march on on Twitter. So first and foremost, Jennifer, welcome to Amicus. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here, Dahlia. Um, so I really do think I speak for a lot of people when I tell you I get a little bit lost, Jen. And so I wanted to have you on the show because I feel like you always say, follow the money, follow the money. And I need you to tell me what Bob Mueller is following. Where is that money leading us, please? Even though I try to follow the money very, very closely, there is just so much money involved here. If you're wondering what exactly Bob Mueller is it following at this point? What I would say is that I, uh, maybe this is a spoiler alert, but when it comes to that Eric Prince and a Russian banker meeting in the Seychelles, or even that Trump Tower meeting from June of 2016, whatever Mueller has been looking for, I think he's already found it. And what I mean by that is if we, we step back a bit, Mueller's mandate is really three parts. You know, the first thing, as everybody is probably aware, is that he kind of picked up where FBI Director James Comey left off, looking into whether there was any coordination between the Trump campaign and the Russian government. 
The second part is to also prosecute anyone who interferes with his investigation. And so that would include, um, you know, things like obstruction of justice or false statements. And we've seen a lot of people plead guilty to false statements. But there's just sort of a third part that's a little more open-ended, which is to, you know, to investigate and prosecute any crimes that that come up along the way. And I really think this is kind of a triple header um, when we look at that Seychelles meeting. And in terms of um, that first question about coordination, that meeting in the Seychelles could be very, very important. We have, you know, Donald Trump saying that he has zero investments in Russia and nothing to do with Russia. So we have to ask ourselves why, and this goes to that particular meeting, why did he have someone or why did someone, uh, Eric Prince, claim that he was a surrogate for the incoming Trump uh, administration, travel down to um, to the Seychelles and um, attempt to set up a back channel with the Kremlin, because that is what now we are finding that a new witness um, to the Mueller grand jury has testified to, right? There's this guy, um, George Nader, who apparently set up that meeting. So when I say this is a triple header, at least on the first front, you have to say, well, um, there was some coordination, albeit post-election, before inauguration, trying to coordinate in some way for some purpose with a Russian fund manager tied to the Kremlin that that he met with. Secondly, there may be possible other crimes because having any foreign money be directed into a U.S. political campaign is a violation of federal election law, right? So the third thing, though, is what about, does this go to any interference with the the Mueller investigation, and we actually may have um, another uh, a potential defendant in a false statements uh, type case. Eric Prince testified before a congressional committee, and he indicated that he just happened upon um, this particular um, Kremlin-tied Russian banker um, at the bar at a hotel in the Seychelles. He claimed that he had traveled down there for other purposes, that he was not there as a representative of the Trump administration. And he still claims that's the case. But we have this other witness who is now testified before a grand jury saying, hey, you know, I actually helped set up the meeting. And it was absolutely about trying to set up a back channel with the Kremlin. There is no crime called collusion, right? So every time Trump says no collusion, no collusion, that's not a thing. It's it's more complicated than that, the thing that Mueller's looking for. And what you're saying is a piece of this has to not just be, did Trump and the Russians get together and agree to take the election from Hillary? It's where was the money directed and what were the financial incentives and the financial payments that prove this, right? Um, So let me just answer that question. There's no federal crime called collusion. There is a federal crime called conspiracy. And there are two branches to conspiracy. We've already seen Mueller charge conspiracy as part of the investigation. The two branches of conspiracy include a standalone crime, conspiracy to defraud the United States. And then there's um, the other type of conspiracy, again, under that same statute, um, where it's conspiracy to violate another federal law. But what we did see um, in some of the charges brought by Mueller is that he, for example, against the 13 Russian nationals and the Russian organizations um, related to interfering in the U.S. election, he charged as one of the um, offenses conspiracy to defraud the United States. So I know what I'm going to ask of you is unreasonable, but you just referenced we have an awful lot of people who have been charged with federal crimes, 19 individuals, three organizations. We have just way more people involved than I can keep track of anymore. Can you help us through who's been charged with what, who has not been charged and why that's interesting and and where it's going. And I, I realize that's a lot of people and entities, but to the extent that you can just make it super clear moving forward. So, so far, there have been six Americans who have been charged. Of those, five have entered guilty pleas. So the first one 
was um, George Papadopoulos, and he pleaded guilty to one count of what's called false statements. And this really is essentially lying. Um, He lied to the FBI in January of 2017, right after the inauguration. And what he lied about is contacts that he had in 2016 while he was working as a foreign advisor to the Trump campaign. Um, The second um, plea came from Michael Flynn, and um, Michael Flynn um, pleaded guilty also to a count of false statements. What Michael Flynn had lied about was contacts he had in late December with the Russian ambassador, Sergei Kislyak. And it was really about two different things. One was about the sanctions that had just been imposed upon the Russian government and also about a U.N. vote concerning Israeli settlements. Um, The third person to plead guilty was Rick Gates, um, pleaded guilty to conspiring to defraud the United States over a 10-year period between 2006 and 2017 by using offshore accounts to hide money he and Paul Manafort had received while working for Ukraine. But he also pleaded to a um, charge of false statements. There's also a fellow um, named Alex Vanderswan. And he uh, was a lawyer uh, at a large uh, global law firm, Skadden Arps, and he pleaded guilty to a false statement. And there is also a fifth uh, individual from the U.S. who pleaded guilty, a guy named Richard Pinedo, who um, pleaded guilty to identity fraud. And this came out in connection with those charges against the Russian nationals. So our last person who's been um, indicted but has not pleaded to anything yet is Paul Manafort. And Paul Manafort was um, the former campaign uh, chairman. He's wearing actually two different um, electronic bracelets because he has um, been indicted in two different jurisdictions. Um, He initially was indicted on multiple accounts, including conspiracy against the United States, conspiracy to launder money, false statements, failure to register um, as a foreign um, lobbyist. He is also up now on additional tax evasion and bank fraud charges. The reason why I think Paul Manafort might be the most important piece in this puzzle is because he has longstanding ties to Russian interests. Uh, I don't know if you remember this, but he um, he worked and was paid millions of dollars to help um, Viktor Yanukovych, who was a Russian-supported um, person, to become elected in 2010. And he also uh, has worked for the Russian billionaire Oleg Deripaska, um, since 2005. And Deripaska is an oligarch who is very close to Putin. And he was um, prohibited from coming to the U.S. for a long period of time due to his ties uh, to organized crime. Um, so what makes, I think, Manafort the most sort of interesting individual among the Americans who have been indicted um, is that he curiously um, joined the Trump campaign around March of 2016. And then a couple months later, he became campaign chairman. Um, And this was at a time when he was deeply in debt to various um, Russian business interests. Uh, And he, there, there, there's a lot about his communications um, destined for um, Oleg Deripaska, that, that oligarch I mentioned, the motivation for him to perhaps um, coordinate in a, in a quid pro quo way with the Russian government was to somehow clear himself of these debts. It certainly seems like he had the motive and certainly the um, moral flexibility, so to speak, to um, try to personally benefit himself to clear his debts um, and use his position on the campaign in that way. So, so why hasn't Manafort uh, pled guilty? The best thing I can think of is, you know, we just heard the other day, um, a couple things that one of the judges in the uh, cases against him um, expects that he could, you know, be in prison for life. And that seems like um, something that would motivate a person to flip. But on the other hand, uh, we just heard the other day about yet another, um, I don't know how to put this in a, other than we just heard about another dead Russian I mean, look, I mean, if you had to choose between life um, in a white collar um, federal prison or, I don't know, polonium 210 or some crazy nerve agent, I mean, 
I don't know. I think I'd choose the door on the left myself. So, you know, there's that. Uh, Jen, we, we hear so often from the Mueller skeptics right and left that so what? So what? So back channels are okay. You're allowed to, you know, talk to people during, uh, you know, before you've been sworn in. Uh, What's so what? So there's meetings. Big deal. Uh, What's the answer to that? The question really isn't, were there secret meetings? But why were there these secret meetings? And why were they lied about? The, the meeting in the Seychelles was just a couple weeks after Jared Kushner, the president's son-in-law, met in Trump Tower with the Russian ambassador asking to set up a back channel as well. Shortly after Jared um, met with the Russian ambassador, he also met with um, a banker at um, VEB, which is essentially an arm of the Russian government. So was this about the incoming administration or was he really um, trying to arrange a back channel um, to try to help his own family business. When we say follow the money, what we're saying is this becomes hugely problematic when everybody is not divested from their business. They're continuing uh, to uh, reap the financial benefits. So this is beyond just this question of collusion. It's this bleeds into some of the other stuff you've worked on, which is the emolument stuff and the transparency stuff. And how do we know that this isn't really stinky if they're still profiting, right? Like this is fixable if you have both transparency and clean lines. Am I right? Completely. And I, you know, if the story of Watergate, if the refrain that we often remember from the Watergate hearing was about President Nixon, what did he know? And when did he know it? I think here with the Trump-Russia scandal, the question is, regarding the whole cast of characters, what did they owe and when did they owe it? Or really, what did they owe and to whom did they owe it? Because if you look at so many of the folks, whether it's Jared Kushner with billions of dollars of debt weighing down his family business or Paul Manafort in debt to to Russian oligarchs, or even the history um, with the Trump organization, with Donald Trump, when he was in deep back in early 2001, when he even told his daughter, Ivanka, that maybe, you know, that the the homeless man they saw on the street was better off than him because he was, you know, a billion dollars at least in debt. Where did he turn? You know, he turned to, um, to, to, his ties in Russia at the time to help him. And that's where all of the money kind of flowed in from there, according to statements um, made by his own his own kids. That's where they were seeing a lot of money coming in. There's definitely motives here. And one of the questions is, was there a quid pro quo? So, so this all brings us in, in a sort of classic roll-up fashion. We're, we're hoping everybody turns on the guy who stands on his shoulders, and that's how these uh, proceedings generally happen. Are, are we working our way up to Jared Kushner, Jen? At the very least. Keep talking. I think the purpose of the classic financial roll-up is to flip your way all the way up to the top dog. Um, the, you know, who is the top decision maker or co-conspirator? You don't stop now. I think there clearly there's a need to look at what's happening with Jared Kushner and his father, Charles Kushner and the money that that uh, came in through Cutter, um, that sounds suspicious. Don Jr. should definitely be a target of the Mueller investigation. He agreed to hold a meeting with a Kremlin link lawyer and others in Trump Tower to obtain what he thought would be dirt on Hillary Clinton and. I'm certain that the special counsel is pursuing that. That's an important um, piece of this puzzle. Partly because it implicates uh, campaign finance laws, right? Exactly. The main question there is whether the special counsel will consider the opposition research or the promise of opposition research coming from a foreign national to be a thing of value, which is prohibited. So anyone who is a Russian national who's not also a U.S. citizen or any business organization in Russia or even the Russian government is considered a foreign national. And our law is very clear that they can't give anything in value in connection with 
with a campaign. Um, and there is um, there is guidance to suggest that opposition research would qualify, and it doesn't even matter if what um, what was brought along to that meeting um, was was you know what was hoped for. Even the um, soliciting of it or the offering of it um, is a violation in and of itself. So to me, I think the meeting in Trump Tower in 2016 is such a critical meeting. Um, because then you say, where else do we go? If you, if, if you go next to Jared Kushner and after that to Don Jr., I think you go up to the next level to the president himself. Um, because there really is a question as to whether he knew about that meeting and maybe, um, he is part of, um, that a criminal violation there. So we need to know more if he was, if there was a conspiracy to violate federal election law, was he part of that conspiracy? Jen, can you talk a little bit about the Eric Schneiderman piece of the puzzle? Uh, you know, I think that the simple uh, take that everybody tends to have is, oh, you know, he's doing whatever he's doing at the state level, because that way, no matter what Bob Mueller does and no matter who is pardoned for federal crimes, we're going to have state crimes charged. That's the easy answer. But is there something more complicated going on? Is, is Schneiderman doing something fundamentally different from what Bob Mueller is probing? I agree with you that in some ways, the having state attorneys general um, pursuing claims um, within their jurisdiction is kind of a, a, you know, a belt and suspenders type of situation where to the extent that the president um, attempts to um, pardon certain witnesses, um, you know, pardon certain people so that they don't flip as an incentive or don't testify and so on, um, it could really undermine Mueller's investigation. Um, that's the thinking. And so having available um, state attorneys general who, again, if certain crimes um, were committed, for example, in New York, then, you know, he could bring, you know, the state analog. That's that's one thing. I'm much more intrigued, though, by the other ways in which Schneiderman has a certain kind of leverage. I was intrigued. I don't know if you saw this the other day um, when it, it may have slipped people's eyes, but it kind of gave me the chills. And I and I hope that folks at the in the uh, um, you know in the West Wing are paying attention to this. But he just um, he just indicted the mayor of Mount Vernon for illegal use of campaign money. I just saw that um, that struck a chord for me, and I thought that might be sending an important message to Melania Trump um, or to the. Um, Trump inaugural committee. Saying what? What's the message? Well, and this was a kind of small potatoes type, um, you know, illegal use of campaign money. So, mm-hmm. you know, the Mount Vernon mayor supposedly used campaign money that he should have been using um, uh, in cash from his inaugural committee to fund a family trip to Mexico, make payments on an SUV by his wife, a Chanel purse and the like. And I zeroed in on the fact that this indictment wasn't just campaign money, but it was also funds from the inaugural committee. And what I thought this was parallel to um, was that, you know, there's a big question about what happened with the um, $107 million that the Trump inaugural committee raised. And I just want to point out that, you know, um, Rick Gates, the guy who just pleaded guilty to some you know, and had a number of charges dropped against him. Rick Gates assisted on the Trump inaugural committee. So he might be a helpful witness there. And wh- we don't know what happened to the $107 million entirely. But what we do know is somehow the inaugural committee paid $26 million to an event planning firm that was started by a friend of Melania Trump. Um, and to me, I thought um, that's interesting. And to the extent that this friend uh, resides in New York, um, I wonder whether – I don't know. I haven't researched this, but I wonder whether um, Schneiderman would have any jurisdiction over that or not. It seems like another um, another angle, whether that is within you know federal jurisdiction or whether the state might have s- some authority to investigate that particular event planning firm um, – 
I, I found that a little bit uh, intriguing. I love when you white collar people get excited. It's funny. Um, so, 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 Jen, I need to ask you this question. As of uh, this taping, we're just now hearing that Mueller is now widening the net and he's actually going to subpoena the Trump Organization documents that include Russia and include the family businesses. And that was a red line uh, for the president who said, this is when I would go uh, bananas. Uh, so so two questions. Uh, what does that signal to you, the fact that he's now delving into exactly the matters you and I have been talking about this entire show? And and, and then what what's your plan for if and when Mueller gets fired, as is currently being uh, whispered? How's this going to go down? Well, whenever the discussion of what happens if Bob Mueller gets fired comes up, people often have the same series of questions. I think the first one people have is, well, what happens to the grand jury? Does it continue its work? Right? That's one question. The second thing is, what's the big deal? Didn't this just happen? The same thing happen with Watergate um, after the Saturday Night Massacre and and after you know, Bork did the firing. Didn't he appoint someone who was good, Leon Jaworski, and we ended up, you know, the truth came out and so on. So why is this a big deal? I think that's a second question. Um, and uh, the the third, third question is um, sort of the political one, which is um, regardless of um, what the grand jury will continue to do or not do and whether someone else will just take this over, I think the political question is, um, if that actually happens in the coming days or weeks, you know, what will the public outcry be? Will we be like South Korea where millions of people hit the streets and this becomes so untenable that maybe the Republican Party actually steps up and begins an impeachment investigation? I mean, what could what, what would possibly happen in this country? So I think those are the three questions I have. Um, and unfortunately, I don't have answers to them. Maybe you do. No, ma'am. That's why we got you on the show. But um, <laughs> we're going to talk to Bob Bauer in a minute. Maybe he does. Uh, but I think that I think it's just worth uh, nothing focuses the mind, right? Like the prospect of uh, Bob Mueller getting fired or Jeff Sessions getting fired. Uh, he would presumably, uh, if he were gone and not recused, then uh, the new attorney general could get fired. So so I think this is, you know, I think I've said before, don't get laser focused uh, on Bob Mueller. There's a lot of other ways uh, that this could be incredibly uh, worrisome. But I think your fundamental point is the right one, which is if this isn't enough to get people uh, quite, quite anxious about rule of law in the state of democracy, uh, what would be? And I and I think that's a question to which there is no answer. Jennifer Taub teaches law at Vermont Law School. She researches and writes in the areas of corporate governance, financial market reform, securities regulation, and white collar crime. And she has been following the TikTok of this Mueller probe from the beginning. Jen, thank you so much for joining Joining us this week on Amicus. I know you're just getting over a flu and we appreciate your time. Thanks so much, Dahlia. Time now for an announcement for any lawyers who happen to be listening in. And I hope you are there. We know who you are and we figured you'll be interested in the following pitch. Slate is looking to hire a lawyer who's also a very sharp writer and thinker to write a new legal newsletter for us. Would you rather think and write and argue about the most interesting legal questions of the day than actually practice law? Me too. Anyway, if that's the case, you should apply. This is not for my job. Please don't send panicky emails. Find out more at slate.com slash legal writer. Now back to the show. We're going to turn now to a different and yet still Trump-based inquiry. Uh, this time, it's about Donald Trump and his lawyers, as in what he wants his lawyers to do all day. This is a question that's taken on real salience, actually, this week, as a former adult film star, Stormy Daniels, has uh, really tied us up in knots for days on end as she fights to get out from under a non-disclosure agreement about a relationship she says she had with the president that the White House is simultaneously denying and also trying to enforce. Uh, so I thought it would be a good idea to talk to Bob Bauer about the wonderful world of lawyers, uh, in part because he wrote about it this week in Lawfare and also because his article was a bracing reminder to me that uh, the president's lawyers actually have norms and rules, and we may have forgotten that. So I want to welcome uh, to the show Bob Bauer. He served as White House counsel to President Obama, returned to private practice in 2011. 
In 2013, President Obama named him to be co-chair of the Presidential Commission on Election Administration. He's written numerous books about campaign finance and elections law, and he's on the faculty now at NYU Law School. He's also a contributing editor of Lawfare. He writes legal commentary for Just Security. And so, Bob, I think I want you just to explain to me uh, the way White House counsel thinks about or former White House counsel thinks about White House counsel and then just these norms around what government lawyers do and don't do and the ways in which they've collapsed. And I thought maybe we could start with the very basic question of what does White House counsel do all day? And how is it different from the other lawyers who are in the president's orbit, whether it's, you know, the OLC, the attorney general, his personal lawyers? What 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 does White House counsel look like? White House counsel represents uh, the executive office of the presidency or to you know put it more simply, he represents the presidency. Now, of course, He's appointed to the position by a particular president with a particular program. And so in some respects, it's impossible to say that the White House counsel doesn't represent the particular president who appointed him and whom he or she serves on a day-to-day basis. But he's a government lawyer. Um, And so speaking now with someone like Don McGahn, his obligation is to represent the institution. And that's tricky because, as I said a minute ago, he represents an individual who almost certainly thinks of himself. Most presidents think of themselves as the client. And yet he has to balance the responsiveness to that particular person who considers himself the client against his overall obligation as a government lawyer to the institution of the presidency. He's a government attorney. He represents the interests of the public. So that builds in a certain amount of tension. You mentioned the Office of Legal Counsel in the Justice Department. The Office of Legal Counsel discharges functions on delegated authority from the Attorney General. They're Justice Department lawyers, and they provide advice to the executive branch, binding advice to the executive branch on a whole range of issues. And there again, while the head of OLC is nominated by the president and confirmed by the Senate, the individual lawyers in the OLC are hired uh, by the OLC leadership – All of them are obligated to consider themselves government lawyers who, on the one hand, have that internal client like the attorney general or, you know, the particular administration they serve, but they have also an overriding obligation to consider the long-range interests of the institution. So can you give me an example, just a really concrete example of historically how that tension manifests? I mean, how how do you find yourself if you are uh, White House counsel uh, in a situation where the interests of the president and the office of the president are not aligned? Here's an example. and I'm, I'm picking it because it's sort of so outlandish in some respects. It's both entertaining and it underscores the point I think you want me to make. When John Dean was President Nixon's White House counsel, he was looking to define the office a certain way. He was very young, and he was apparently uh, anxious to establish a presence for the White House counsel. So he was looking, if you will, to sort of fill out its portfolio. He wrote a memorandum in which he talked about various functions the White House counsel could perform, most of which, for example, you know, helping provide clearances for executive branch appointments are fairly standard and continue to this day. But he also volunteered the White House counsel's support uh, for the enterprise of looking into the backgrounds of potential opponents to to President Nixon in his reelection campaign in 1972. Now, that was very important to President Nixon, but the White House counsel doesn't function as a support to the president in his political capacity. He doesn't function as a support to the president in his personal capacity. He functions in support of the president and advises the president solely in his official capacity. But that requires a president who understands the difference between his personal attorney and his divorce attorney and uh, his White House counsel and his attorney general. And I think one of the things that you wrote this week that was striking uh, to me was this is a president who just really, I think, maybe in part because he comes up through New York real estate, but he just wants all his attorneys to be uh, the guy who just fixes stuff, right? Yes. As far as I can tell, and I think there's a decent amount of evidence to support this view, the president views the lawyers as he views every single other member of his staff, which is individuals who who are supposed to deliver the goods. 
They're supposed to give him the answer that he wants, clear away the obstacles he doesn't want to have to deal with. And in that sense, you know, he wants, to put it in his crudest terms, he wants yes people in that job. Now, you know, I'm not saying he never listens to a lawyer. I suppose that, you know, if a lawyer were to say to him, if you do X, you're almost certainly going to land in jail for the rest of your life. You know, the president might pay attention to that. But overall, the over the sense that you have uh, is that the president doesn't have any appreciation of the professional responsibility of the lawyer to advise, first of all, as an independent professional, which means just by definition, the lawyer can't give the president what he wants. It's not bona fide legal advice if it's tailor-made to the president's wishes. And secondly, if the lawyer doesn't appreciate that institutional role that I was talking about just a minute ago, that he's not there just to serve Donald Trump. He's there to assist with the Trump presidency uh, and to represent the presidency as an institution. Now, let me just stress again, there's some balance to be struck. I mean, certainly the White House counsel, like the lawyers at the Office of Legal Counsel, as very good lawyers, would be looking for opportunities to provide legal channels for the president to do what he was elected to do. That's legitimate. But there are limits. And you mentioned the word limits previously, and it's precisely limits that I think uh, this president has a huge amount of trouble with. Yeah. And and I think you teased it out in your column really effectively when you compared the ways Michael Cohen, the president's personal lawyer, uh, kind of couldn't say no when he was asked uh, to deflect and, and lie for the president. And that Don McGahn, uh, when he was asked to, you know, put out a false statement about the possible uh, uh, firing that uh, he was evidently asked to participate in, that he actually wouldn't lie uh, to the president. Is that a function of who those people are or is that a function of their role as lawyers? One is a sort of personal lawyer for the president and one who answers at some level to uh, the, the responsibilities of being White House counsel. Maybe that's not a fair question, but uh, clearly one can lie. Yeah, fair enough. Without speaking, you know, to sort of how Michael Cohn views his job, because I don't know Michael Cohn, I would say, as far as one can tell, the problem occurs on two levels. Uh, the first is that even a lawyer to someone in their personal capacity has to draw certain limits, has to be prepared to say no, uh, ha- has in the end to adhere to a certain standard of independence and professionalism. So that's one core concern any lawyer, even in a personal capacity, would have to have. And then the second problem is uh, managing uh, the pressures from somebody who doesn't understand the role of a lawyer and and not yielding, if you will, uh, to the demands from that client for sort of a yes answer. Um, I suppose the two points I'm making are roughly the same. In McGann's case, you know, he has the additional requirement, if you will, is to meet the additional requirement of being a public servant. And that's what he is. Michael Cohn isn't, although I would say again, I just want to repeat this, so I'm very clear about this. Even as a personal lawyer, it's not as if Cohn is entitled to throw everything out the window to get the president what he wants. The candidate of ethics certainly call on uh, lawyers to be zealous in the representation of their clients, but there are canons, there are ethical limits, even on the zealousness of the representation, on the lengths to which lawyers will go to satisfy their client. Is this, in the end, just a function of it has historically been the case and certainly in your lifetime it's been the case that uh, the lawyers who take positions in the executive branch in the Justice Department just know the culture, they know the drill, and then when you get uh, people like Michael Cohen in there who are just like, no, this is this is the way we've always done it. I mean, is it just a failure of D.C. culture to make itself known uh, to the wider world? Or is there something, I, I mean, I'm just so, I, I find myself constantly baffled uh, that this is not sort of learnable or teachable, uh, that there are lawyers in the world who just think this is all, all these D.C. norms are silly. Uh, am I wrong? I don't think you're wrong. I think you're, put your, you're putting your finger, particularly with respect to the White House Counsel's Office, on a very important vulnerability. And I contrast it for this purpose with the Office of Legal Counsel and the Department of Justice. You know, there you do have an institution that has, I think, a developed culture. The White House Counsel's at close quarters with the president. It's a very personal position in one sense. The president appoints the White House Counsel. The White House Counsel is not, of course, confirmed by the Senate. 
and uh, he or she is one floor above uh, the first floor where the Oval Office is located and is back and forth on a day-to-day basis uh, addressing the needs that the president has for legal advice or that the senior staff has. And so do I believe there's a consistent set of norms that have been established that all White House counsels clearly understand? No. Uh, I think probably there isn't enough of one. And then the second uh, consequence of that or the consequence of that is that in the absence of those norms, what becomes extraordinarily important is the temperament, the character, and the expectation of the president himself. And in that situation, if the president has the inclination to view lawyers the way I believe Donald Trump views them and the way he views the rest of his staff, um, then I think that if you take that together with the sorts of problems with with the absence of a completely developed culture around the office, uh, that can lead to very, very serious problems. I wonder if there was a line in your piece that I've been I've been thinking about the last couple of days. And and I'm just going to read it to you because I think I'm going to ask you to unpack it. Um, And the line is, you say, Trump's attitude toward law and his use and abuse of lawyers are distinguishing features of his presidency, which may well help bring it down. While prosecutors like uh, Robert Mueller investigate crimes and not people, they also consider whether the individuals who come within their sight in the course of an investigation have illicit intent or motive. Character unavoidably enters in this judgment. By now, it is clear to the special counsel, among others, that this president has a purely instrumental view of lawyers and the law. Now, that's what you've been saying. You know, character matters. Uh, it matters the, the tone with which uh, the president uh, views the lawyers. Are, are you saying that at some point Mueller is going to start looking at these people who uh, are not uh, playing within the boundaries of the rules and the norms of of uh, how things are done and looking askance at them because they have an obligation, even in the absence of the president wanting them to perform on that obligation. Are, are you saying that Mueller is looking? I, I guess I'm curious about whose character Mueller's looking at at this moment. It's impossible, you know, to think about this uh, without obviously putting Donald Trump at the center of all of it. I mean, so... I really had in mind Donald Trump okay. and Donald Trump's behavior toward lawyers, his apparent attitude toward the law. And clearly, uh, you know, to the extent that Mueller's investigating actions by Donald Trump, he's investigating actions and he's looking at the facts uh, that raise questions about whether the actions comply with the law. But of course, in every case, you know, there's a question of, you know, intent, you know, was there willfulness, was, was there mens rea, did the is was there clearly intent uh, to engage in misconduct of the specified kind that he's looking at? And over time, I, I think it's inevitable. It's certainly been my experience in private practice. Uh, you know, prosecutors develop a picture of the person whose conduct is being investigated. And when the time comes to think about those questions of intent, if you will, to make the close calls to try to decide between version A and version B, you know, particularly the version that the, that the uh, suspect or target is pressing upon the prosecutor, that picture becomes relevant. It, it shades or colors in some way uh, how they're going to interpret uh, the behavior of the person whose, behavior, whose actions they're investigating. What we have is a president who has, uh, just count the ways, you know, berated his uh, and, and indeed had his White House counsel threatened for not lying publicly about uh, whether or not he'd been given an order to fire Bob Mueller. We have a president who's publicly berated his attorney general for complying with the requirement that he recuse himself under DOJ regulations for the Russia investigation. We have a president who has openly pressured his attorney general to undertake investigations into his 2016 political opponent, Hillary Clinton. So you have a president whose respect for law is, I'll put it kindly, very much in doubt, uh, whose view of the law is very instrumental. And it's just hard to see how in a a case where the president's motives and intent uh, are inevitably going to be presented, that this isn't going to work very much against him in the final assessment uh, by prosecutors. Is the simpler way of saying what you've just said that at some level Bob Mueller is tasked with defending the rule of law 
defending the notion that law matters and that lawyers do what lawyers do and that in some fashion that is also part of the mandate is that just he is tasked with because no one else can serve as the rule of law backstop that he is going to be thinking this president who is purely transactional about the law that this stands for something when he pushes back. Is that what you're saying? As a special counsel whose investigation of, you know, concerns the president and close aides and family members of the president, it's going to be, of course, very important that Mueller you know, set aside subjective impressions and the like and stay focused on the law and the evidence. He's a consummate professional. That's what he'll try to do. But on the other hand, you know, on the flip side of what I just said, he is looking at conduct at the by individuals who hold uh, the positions of the highest public responsibility in the United States and in particular the president and does that will that enter into how he thinks what his obligation here is in making final decisions about what happened what's chargeable and what's not and I'm setting aside the question of whether he will agree that the president can be indicted while in office that's a I don't know how he's going to come down on that issue but I do think, to answer your question squarely, that concern with this investigation and the legacy of this investigation, if you will, as a vindication of the rule of law has to weigh somewhat in the way the special counsel's team thinks about what their work is. So so that's a great segue to the last thing I wanted to ask. There are a hundred things I want to ask you, but I'm going to ask you this and then have you come back to talk about other things. Um, you, you talked in your piece about Leonard Garment. He was Richard Nixon's longtime political associate. He eventually becomes a member of the legal defense team in Watergate, and he advises Nixon. And you talk about him deciding to stay on because he thinks of Nixon at this point is a, a, quote, extraordinary leader and and a friend. And it it led me to ask you to reflect a little bit on the question I I often ask people who've served in government, which is, how do you balance uh, the tension between your love of this office, your dedication to the executive branch, your dedication to this person, uh, maybe a little bit of a side of also, I think I'm here mitigating damages. If I leave, it's going to be worse uh, because Omarosa is going to become uh, the the president's legal advisor. How do you balance all these things? And And I guess my question is, there is this line, and I've been trying to find it for a year, between staying on because you value this president, you value the work uh, because you value the office and you really are, in your view, bolstering this office and then sliding into colluding with something that is, uh, I think the legal term is bananas. And and so I guess I want to ask you to reflect maybe through the prism of Leonard Garment, you know, staying on and advising Nixon. But also, I think we started this conversation about, you know, this is about loyalty to an office. Um, how do you how do you sort of slip and slide your way through that tension when you genuinely believe, as I suspect, a lot of people who have stayed on uh, in good faith genuinely believe that they're doing that uh, because of some higher calling? Yes, and it would be very easy for people, particularly if they love the job and if they have believed at some point in the person they're serving, it would be very difficult for people to deal with that issue, I'm sure. It's not easy. We're all human. I suppose the term that comes to mind uh, and the the trap you wouldn't want to fall into is the term enabler and the trap of becoming an enabling party. So in other words, at some point, a lawyer has to be very honest with himself or herself and ask the question, am I, by hanging on, actually accomplishing something that is productive and consistent both with the interests of the institution and with my professional responsibility, or have I become an enabler? Um, am I simply here you know, 75% of the time to basically allow something I don't approve of to go on, that I shouldn't approve on to go on, that's inconsistent with the public interest to go on, even if you know, 25% of the time I periodically express some concern, I take the White House Chief of Staff aside and I tell him I'm worried about it, and then I let it drop if nothing happens. So I satisfy myself that I've expressed my my concerns, you know, that I have given effect to my conscience by just, by and large, for the record, now and then, 
being worried about something and being open that I'm open that I'm worried about something, but then I just go on uh, with an institution, with an arrangement, with a culture, and with a, with with frankly an employer who is engaged in activities that I, as a lawyer, should not be enabling, and that's a very hard issue to face. Where it really collapses, I think, in the White House is if the White House itself, because I spoke of culture earlier itself suffers from a rancid culture so that not only do I have the problem that I have with the president, but I have nowhere else to turn, no other allies in the building like the chief of staff to bolster my efforts to maintain a professional posture toward the president. Um, And, you know, if a lawyer, uh, you know, looks at all of that and recognizes that the role has become fundamentally an enabling role, then I, I honestly don't believe that he or she can defend staying there any longer. I don't know the facts right now of the different wars that uh, the current White House counsel has fought, how many he's won that we don't hear about, how many he's lost that we do hear about. So I don't know what his batting average is. I don't know how much support he's getting with what success from elsewhere in the building. But I think those are the questions that obviously I'd be surprised if he wasn't asking himself. And um, I, you know, I think that at the end of the day, that's what lawyers cannot ultimately be and remain good lawyers. They cannot become their clients enablers. Bob Bauer served as White House counsel under President Obama. In 2013, the president named him to be co-chair of the Presidential Commission on uh, Election Administration. He's written multiple books on campaign finance law, elections law, and is on the faculty at NYU Law School. He's also a contributing editor of Lawfare and Rights for Just Security, all indispensable in this moment. And thank you so much, Bob, for giving us a little bit of your time. Thank you. It was a pleasure. And so, unlike the Bob Mueller investigation, this episode of Amicus has now come to an end. Thank you so much for listening. If you would like to get in touch with us, our email, as ever, is amicus at slate.com. You can always find us at facebook.com slash amicus podcast in both fora. We love to hear your questions, your comments, your thoughts about future shows. Today's show was produced by the divine Sarah Burningham. Steve Lichtai is our executive producer. June Thomas is managing producer of Slate Podcasts. And we will be back with you in two short weeks for another episode of Amicus. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.